Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Nationwide, up to 10% of adults 65 and older have been abused and mistreated. The National Institute on Aging says often they're women or older adults who have no family or friends nearby. Also, people with disabilities, memory problems, or dementia. And only one in four, 24 cases of elder abuse is identified. Researchers say people often don't understand what elder abuse is, or they're afraid of losing autonomy, or fear retribution from a caregiver, and this prevents victims from reporting abuse. Today, where we live, we focus on elder abuse and a new digital screening tool by Yale researchers to self-identify and respond to abuse. Coming up, we'll hear from the State Office of Elder Protective Services that investigates elder abuse. And the AARP joins us to talk about Connecticut legislation that could help prevent the mistreatment of older adults. Now, is this an issue that has touched your family? Did you know where to turn for help? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on Zoom is Fuad Abujarad, Dr. Fuad Abujarad, who's an associate professor of emergency medicine at Yale School of Medicine. Fuad, welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy, and thank you for having me. Uh, the reason that we invited you on is you're the principal investigator of the Voices Project, which we're going to learn about. But before we get there, when we talk about elder abuse, can you define that for us? Yes, Lucy. The elder abuse consists of all types of physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, and financial abuse, as well as neglect and abandonment con committed by a person in position of a trust for the older adults. And has there been has there been awareness uh, growing related to this, or is this still a topic that is often not discussed in our society? Yeah, unfortunately, it's a topic that is rarely discussed in the society. And one um, major difficulty that we're facing in uh, detecting elder abuse is the number of cases or the ratio of number of cases reported to authorities is still very low. As, as you said, Lucy, one in 24 cases of elder abuse is only discovered. This means the other 23 cases still unknown, unaddressed, um, which means the vast majority of older adults subject to elder abuse are running without services that could help stop the abuse and help support them in living independently. And so ways to empower older adults to identify when this is happening and ways to reach out for help is part of the reason you and your team at Yale School of Medicine created a digital tool 
to identify and respond to elder abuse. Uh, I wanted to play uh, Vicki, who is actually an avatar in this screening tool called Voices. Let's hear it. Hi, I am Vicki, your digital coach. I am here to help guide you through the Voices tool. There are about 1 in 10 Americans age 60 and above who have experienced abuse either from their caregiver, a family member, or someone close to them that they depend on. As our population increases and as we continue to grow older, it is important that we make sure everyone is able to live safely, comfortably, and without fear. First, I will show you resources about mistreatment and then I will ask you a few questions to get to know you better. So Fawad, that sounds like an introductory message for someone who's going to use the Voices tool. So walk us through how it works. Exactly. So as I said, one of the major problems is our inability to detect cases. And there are many reasons why older adults don't talk about elder abuse. For example, they, are, they, they have fear of losing their caregivers. They also fear that they will be placed in nursing homes. So in our approach to address the um, issue of making the older adults be their own advocate to um, report cases of um, abuse, we focused on the older adults themselves. And Voices as a, a tool is designed to help first educate them on what's constitute an elder abuse then it will do an automated screening by asking certain questions addressing all types of elder abuse and once a suspicion of elder abuse is identified the avatar in voices will help conduct an automated emotion uh, automated motivational interviewing session with the older adult to help them first recognize that they're victims of elder abuse and to motivate them to report abuse to others around them. And what is the setting where this type of screening tool is most effective of where you might also see gaps where uh, caregivers, healthcare providers can respond to older adults, Fuad? So, so the tool is designed to work um, in most of the settings where older provider, older adults usually receive healthcare. But we identified the emergency department as a major point of our implementation and testing because vast majority of older adults seek medical care in emergency department now. And this is where our uh, study is being conducted now at St. Raphael Emergency Department at Yale New Haven um, Health Hospital. You mentioned the study, and so tell us, uh, you know, more about your findings. Uh, I'm interested to hear again, you know, how someone um, encounters this particular screening tool in an emergency department. So they're going there for some some other um, health issue that they're experiencing, and you know, I'm just wondering if you can talk more about how um, this is in the hands of patients, but how they engage with it, Fuad. Right, right. So, so keep in mind that we're working with older adults. Most of them are, are 60 to 65 years and older. And when I was planning for the study, 
most of the question I am receiving from my peer were focused around, can you actually do this? Can you give older adults iPads or tablets and have them interact with them to um, reveal a taboo subject as elder abuse? And what we did early on is to keep that in mind that our user population is not the typical technology um, early adapters. So we wanted to develop the tool in a way that's easy to use and senior friendly. Usually older adults, when they come to the ED and they volunteer to participate in the study, they're handed a tablet by a research assistant who sit with them in a private sitting uh, during the study session. Of course, we initially consent them, but then we give them the tablet and we give them headphones. The voices tool is self-administrated. It doesn't need anyone to support it, but the RA there just in case the users or the older adults may have technical issues with the tool. But then the tool walks them through the process and the use of Vicky, the avatar, help build that affinity between the tool and the user. We know that conducting an interview through a tablet usually encourage um, the user to self-identify more with taboo subjects and they're more likely to engage in the tool versus doing one-on-one um, -on -one interview because it doesn't have other issues like fear of judgment and fear of perception in, in certain ways. So kind of give them a certain immunity and help them understand the topic of elder abuse, help them learn about it and help them self-report it if they were victims of elder abuse. That's interesting the way you describe that, Fuad, that um, these patients who agreed to participate in the study felt comfortable uh, with this digital avatar asking the questions versus a, a human. It, it is. It is. And, and, and other studies have shown that face-to-face -face interview compared to phone interview compared to tablet-based interview have big differences in the way that the uh, interviewed person can respond to questions. And tablets by far were superior to the other ways of communication. It, it's very interesting that some of the users who participated in the study have never used tablets in their life. In fact, I remember a story of one uh, of the research participants telling us that he always wanted to try this tablet that he have heard about it and this would be a great opportunity for them um, to use it and try it and they were very happy and in fact they used the tool to completion and were able to use it uh, very successfully. And what were the outcomes? You mentioned the study, how many patients uh, participated and were any uh, cases then moved on to the investigations part, uh, FUAD, uh, with other agencies um, involved? Yes, so, so far we have tested the tool with 1,002 patients in the ED settings and what we have identified few important outcomes. First, 
older adults are capable of using technology-based and health-based um, interventions. If you build it right, they will use it and they will be able to successfully benefit from it. Second, we have identified almost 10% of the cases that we have seen, around 110 patients with suspicion of elder abuse. After further investigation by the social worker in the ED, around 50% of the cases that we have identified end up being substantiated and have received services from the social worker. And 11 cases were referred to um, Connecticut Protective Services for the elderly for further investigation. And keep in mind, those 11 cases would have came to the ED, received care, went home without anyone noticing any signs of elder abuse on them. Wow. Uh, you're hearing Fuad Abujarad, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Yale School of Medicine, as we talk more about elder abuse and this new screening digital tool created by the Yale School of Medicine to help patients self-identify abuse or mistreatment that they're experiencing. To get another perspective, uh, joining us on Zoom is Dr. Tony Rosen, who's a researcher in elder abuse and geriatric injury prevention at the Weill Cornell Medical College and also emergency physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Hospital. Uh, Tony, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it, uh, joining you. It's interesting to hear about the, this tool being used in uh, an emergency department. You think about the time constraint that ER physicians and nurses are under. And as Fuad mentions, you know, sometimes that abuse there, you don't see it with your eyes. And so to have that kind of interaction with patients and to hear some of the outcomes, what's your response? Well, I think it's a really exciting uh, project that that uh, Dr. Abujarad and his team are, are working on. Just as you said, uh, often the emergency department and the emergency department visit uh, can be busy and hectic, particularly for providers, but there's often some time. There's often some waiting time uh, for, for patients uh, while uh, tests are being conducted and laboratory tests are being run. Um, and other patients are being evaluated. And so the idea that perhaps uh, some screening, some important uh, part of the visit could be conducted while providers are focused on other things and while patients are waiting uh, is really an exciting, is an exciting potential uh, intervention. And it really uh, has, uh, I think, um, a lot of potential applications. As you can imagine, uh, we've recognized that the emergency department is an important place to screen for a lot of potential things. And uh, our providers are getting more and more burdened by the amount of screenings um, that we recognize are important to do. And so transitioning some of this screening to a tablet and an avatar might be a really good option. What are the limitations, though? At the top of the show, I had mentioned that when we think about uh, the number of older adults uh, who are abused or mistreated uh, in our country, the National Institute on Aging saying often they're women or you know older adults, people with disabilities, memory problems, dementia. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about that. 
Sure. I, and again, I know Dr. Abujarad and his team are thinking about this as well. Um, but unfortunately, uh, having uh, cognitive impairment is among the most important risk factors for uh, encountering elder abuse. And so as a result, it, it is patients with memory issues um, ab about whom we're most concerned. And so we wanna make sure that we can screen and identify and initiate intervention for those folks. Um, and so we wanna make sure that we're thinking about whether any protocol that we develop is also effective for older adults uh, with dementia. In addition, older adults uh, are more commonly have hearing and vision problems. And also these are folks in whom elder mistreatment is harder to identify. And so any protocol that we develop, we would wanna think about how to focus and customize and make sure that folks with these impairments are able to interact with it as well. Mm -hmm. And so those are things I think that we all want to be thinking about as we move forward with how to optimize uh, a, a protocol for older adults in the emergency department or other healthcare settings. Fuad, did you want to add to that? I mean, my question about people that have cognitive impairments and how they'll be able to interact with this digital tool. Yeah, working with um, cognitively impaired patients, especially patients with mild cognitive impairment and mild to moderate dementia is, is not easy. Now, doing research with them is um, fairly complicated and involve many um, steps that we should um, be aware of and pay attention to, to protect um, their privacy and their rights. However, we know from our pilot that patients with mild cognitive impairments and mild dementia have shown great signs of their ability to self-report elder abuse. And um, we are currently running another parallel study to test voices with this specific population. Um, we feel that this um, population is more vulnerable and more subject to elder abuse. Some estimate estimates that when um, in every two or three older adults in this specific population can be victim of elder abuse. So, we hope with our um, current study that we can include older adults with cognitive impairment in the general user groups who can use a tool like voices. And that, as I said, our studies are showing us very good signs so far. Mm. I wanted to go back to Dr. Tony Rosen again, who's a, a emergency physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital, a longtime researcher in elder abuse and geriatric injury prevention at the Weill Cornell Medical College. Uh, Dr. Rosen, uh, Tony, when we think about um, how senior citizens are often uh, the most vulnerable in our society, but thinking about this, even this topic, this issue problem of elder abuse and, and why um, for so long, it, there just doesn't seem to be a lot of awareness about it. Like we talk about child abuse or domestic violence? You know, it's a, it's a really great question, Lucy. And, and I think it's an important one uh, for us to recognize. Uh, unfortunately, just as you say, 
even though elder abuse is common and, and, and can be medically and socially quite serious, it really is under-recognized, under-appreciated, under-diagnosed, and, and, un and under-treated. And there are a lot of reasons for that, I think. Um, one, unfortunately, is ageism. I think that as a society, we unfortunately often uh, undervalue our older adult citizens. And as a result, um, we think we're less focused on protecting older adults and less focused on ensuring that older adults have a high quality of life. Also, it's unclear in a care setting often whether uh, someone has a responsibility to care for an older adult in the same way that a parent clearly has responsibility uh, to care for a child. Also, and I I I'm an emergency physician, it's often harder to identify elder abuse. Uh, as a medical student, we learn a lot about the injury patterns that are consistent with child abuse rather than a fall off the monkey bars. Um, and there's an enormous amount of research and literature uh, to help guide us uh, as physicians and allied professionals in identifying child abuse. Uh, there's very little uh, evidence yet, and we're all working on it, uh, that's similar in elder abuse. Uh, in addition, it's just harder. Older adults have um, thinner skin. They're more likely to bruise. They're more likely to uh, fracture ribs or other bones with minimal trauma uh, because of some of the impacts of aging. And so it's harder to differentiate um, mistreatment uh, from other medical or traumatic issues. So given that, um, it really is a challenging thing to focus on. How also, we haven't known about it for as long. It hasn't been an, a phenomenon that we've taught our medical students, our nursing students, our social work students. Um, we haven't really had nearly as much public awareness focus on this phenomenon. And so, Lucy, I'm really glad, I'm sure... Uh, we're all glad that you're focusing on this topic now, and it couldn't come at a better time because, in fact, the population of older adults is growing dramatically, and the number of older adults that we're going to be seeing in our communities, caring for in our emergency departments, and supporting and living with is going to grow dramatically, and so this is an even more important problem now than it was before and is going to become an even more important problem in the future. But I think that that it is something that we really haven't yet focused on and that we don't yet think enough about either as providers, as professionals, or uh, as members of the community. That's Dr. Tony Rosen, again, a researcher and emergency physician at the New York Presbyterian Hospital. Thank you for the points that you raised. They're important to reflect on, Tony. My pleasure. Again, uh, thank you so much uh, to you for doing this, uh, this presentation and also to Dr. Bujarat and his team. I think that from our perspective, this is really exciting work. And I wanted to add something briefly that from my perspective, 
another important thing to think about when we're thinking about uh, this phenomenon and the work that Dr. Abu Jarad and his team are doing is that a part of the challenge of folks identifying, or in this case, self-reporting elder abuse is that they need to know that it's abuse too. Uh, one of the things about uh, Dr. Bujarad's tool is that there's a component of education, uh, because I think that some older adults don't realize that the that the behaviors that they're experiencing are in fact mistreatment. And also, I think that another exciting element of the work that Dr. Bujarad and his team are doing is that disclosure of this kind of thing can be challenging. It can be intimidating, and so motivating an older adult to think about disclosure is an important uh, component of, uh, of improving our ability to identify and respond to this phenomenon. So from my perspective, Lucy, one of the things to answer your question, one of the things that I think uh, colleagues have often said about elder abuse is that it's not rocket science. It's much harder sometimes. <laughs> and so I think it's really important to recognize uh, that 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 this is an important phenomenon and something that we really can do better on. Thank you, Dr. Tony Rosen. Uh, staying with us is Dr. Fuad Abujarad, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Yale School of Medicine. Coming up after the break, we're going to learn about how this digital screening tool can be expanded to primary care, and we're also going to learn how the state agency that investigates elder abuse responds uh, when there are allegations of mistreatment and the resources that are available. Now, what questions do you have? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook. Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're learning about elder abuse and how a new digital screening tool called Voices aims to educate and empower older adults who may be experiencing abuse or mistreatment. Researchers at Yale School of Medicine developed the tool. The principal investigator of the Voices Project is with us on Zoom, Fuad Abujarad, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Yale School of Medicine. Before we hear more uh, from the state agency that investigates elder abuse. Fuad, you know, we wanted to know how this tool can be scaled up and maybe used in the primary care setting. 
Yes. Uh, Lucy, I want to say that elder abuse is preventable. Elder abuse can be um, stopped. Victims are usually reluctant to report and caretakers, friends, and even police in some cases are reluctant to investigate. What we want to do now is to spread the use of voices tool among other care settings. Um, our initial work was done in, in the emergency department. And as, a, as a, my colleague Tony was saying, it's very important um, area to use the screen for elder abuse. Another um, clinical setting that is very suitable for screening is primary care. We know that older adults frequent visits at least annually to primary care settings. This um, why we partnered with um, Yale um, Internal Medicine Association to work on doing a pilot study uh, in the primary care settings. And we're seeing results similar to the ones that we have seen in the ED where older adults are also um, ready to use the tool in that setting. In addition, we're seeing signs that the care itself is a good place to screen for elder abuse. Well, we were talking earlier about how often this uh, can go unreported for a variety of reasons. To get another perspective on this, joining us is Dorian Long, who's with the Connecticut Protective Services for the Elderly. That's within the State Department of Social Services. Dorian, welcome to our show. Dorian, can you hear us? Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. So we've been talking about elder abuse, uh, the factors that can lead to it, why it's often underreported. But I'm curious, from your perspective with the state, what have you seen in recent years? Well, what we have seen is that uh, over the years, as the uh, population has aged, that referrals to our program have increased. Uh, so uh, we did uh, see a bit of a decline in referrals uh, during uh, 2020 because of the COVID pandemic and uh, folks being less out in the community and more isolated, which is another concern. Uh, but uh, in 2019, we had uh, approximately 8,400 uh, referrals to the protective services for the elderly program. Uh, and that declined by about 6% in 2020 and has rebounded and surpassed the 2019 numbers in 2021 to uh, nearly 8,600 referrals. Mm -hmm. So we're finding that uh, each year we are on an upward trend with referrals to our program. So I'm, I'm curious about the numbers that you shared when we think about how these, how many of these have been substantiated, Dorian. And what when we talk about elder abuse, what I know don't get into it's obviously individual specific cases, but broadly, you know, what types of abuse are we talking about here? So when we're talking about uh, maltreatment in our program, we are referring to uh, emotional abuse where. Uh, Often there are circumstances where uh, elders are threatened by caregivers. Often this type of activity in, entails, um, you know, not allowing folks to see other folks that they care about, um, often grandchildren. 
Uh, sometimes uh, individuals are threatened uh, that they'll be placed in a home or care will not be provided. Uh, we have circumstances of uh, neglect where folks' basic needs are not attended to. Uh, I also would like to, to note that many of the referrals, Connecticut is, is somewhat unique in that we also do uh, address self-neglect. So individuals where elders are responsible for themselves, but for some reason are struggling to meet their basic needs for food, shelter, health care, et cetera, mental health care. Uh, then we have our, our sexual abuse cases and uh, physical abuse cases, which are very much underreported to us. Uh, and we know that this trend, although uh, we have uh, individuals in child welfare and reporting, and it's much stronger there, um, it's also underreported in that arena, and it's woefully underreported in elder abuse. There is some overlap with uh, elder protective services and domestic violence. So there are some individuals that are referred to that system as well. But overall, we're finding that, you know, these are the categories that folks are either not getting their basic needs met, being physically mistreated. And then the last category that we talk about is financial exploitation. And that is a major concern for us uh, in Connecticut. It accounts for about 23% of our cases. So uh, we definitely understand that our elders in our society have had an opportunity to amass wealth. It takes time to build wealth and it makes them vulnerable um, because it's just such a target because it's so large um, that folks engage in behaviors against elders that are pretty significant. So um, our elders are being uh, maltreated in a number of ways. You can join our conversation if you have questions about elder abuse or if you have questions about resources for you and your family. Our number 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Dorian, uh, going back to my question about when we think about all the referrals your agency is getting, how many of these cases are substantiated? Well, uh, not a large number are substantiated, to be perfectly honest. When we start looking at substantiated abuse, we also need to kind of have the elder engaged in that process and, and, and willing to kind of support us in that initiative. So in looking at our report uh, for uh, maltreatment, we find that about 21% of our cases are substantiated uh, and we don't include self-neglect cases in, in that assessment. So about 32% of our cases are actually self-neglect if that offers some clarification. Right. And when we think about what we were learning about earlier, this digital tool developed by Fuad and, and his team, you know, how that can help uh, with the, the work that you and your team are doing, Dorian? Well, we don't know if someone is being maltreated if we are not contacted. So any opportunity that our partners out there in healthcare or in other arenas have to educate uh, elders about the issue of, of maltreatment and to support them in making a referral or getting supports that they need, uh, the better off we all are. Uh, we rely on, on the public to make referrals to us. 
There was a, a story by the Connecticut Mirror that looked at uh, the latest performance audit data for protective services for the elderly, showing higher caseloads that can hinder the ability of workers to visit with elder clients every 30 days as required. Uh, also, the Department of Public Health Facility Licensing and Investigation section doesn't begin investigating many of these less critical complaints it receives within the required 45 days. And so I'm wondering, Dorian, if you could talk about you know, how, again, a tool like this can help solve some of these, uh, these caseload problems. Well, I think the one thing that's important for us is if we can get a referral that gives us rich information about what the elder is experiencing, it allows us to triage and prioritize appointments. We're going to be hearing from the AARP of Connecticut uh, coming up, but when we think about um, just higher caseloads and the fact that referrals are, are going up, Dorian, you know, what's your perspective on, on how the state can better address this, this problem in our communities? So there are a lot of ways that we can uh, move to do this. One of the uh, things we were fortunate that uh, we received some funding from the Administration uh, for Community Living. Uh, which is a federal agency that oversees a lot of programs that relate to, to older adults. And uh, we are we received some funding that we're going to partner with the National Adult Protective Services Association to do a campaign in Connecticut. And we're hoping that that will be deployed before the end of this calendar year that will raise awareness not only about elder maltreatment, but community resources that are available to provide support. So that sometimes folks are just not aware, as Dr. Fouad said, uh, that there were issues with um, folks not understanding the circumstance that they're in and the resources that are available to support them. So if we have a campaign that helps the public know what maltreatment is and what services are available, we'll be in much better shape as a state. We're hearing from uh, a listener uh, who writes that one of the ways elder abuse can happen is when parents don't allow grandparents to see their grandchildren. And so how do you weigh in there, Dorian? Because we think about um, earlier the emotional side of this and and the relationships that are so much very needed in people's lives, especially when they're elderly. Yes, it it is a circumstance that comes up uh, with uh, circumstances that we hear about with uh, uh, emotional abuse. And it's a, it's a difficult wicket because uh, people don't necessarily have a right to engage with other folks. Um, what we try to do is engage with that elder and see if there are ways that we can communicate with other folks that want to see them uh, and get them to explicitly state that that's what they want and you know to really coordinate those efforts. But it's, it's difficult because there is no mandate to allow folks to see other people. Uh, so it really is a, a, a delicate balance. So often if it's raised to people's attention that this uh, really is an abusive treatment, many folks will, will change course, but not always. For people who are listening and want to reach out to get um, some help, what's the best way for them to reach out to you or your team, Dorian? Yes, our protective services hotline uh, is available at um, 888-385-4225. And that is the protective services for the elderly hotline. And it's available Monday through Friday, 8 to 430. Uh, But we do have availability 
of after hours coverage uh, through Infoline 211. If it is an urgent matter that needs to be addressed, of course, there's 911, uh, but we want to make sure that folks are able to get referrals to us. And we'll be sure to share that information out on our website, ctpublic.org, slash where we live. You've been hearing from Dorian Long, who works in the Connecticut Protective Services for the Elderly uh, Department within the State Department of Social Services. Thank you, Dorian, for your time today. Thank you. Uh, Fuad Abujarad is still with us uh, when we've been learning about this uh, this digital screening tool to help, again, empower older adults to self-identify and then to be able to reach out for help. Uh, you're looking for collaborators, Fuad? Do you want to end on that? Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. We're looking for other um, um, care settings and other places where um, collaborators can see a value of a tool like Voices and we're open to work with them and start implementing the tool where they, were, they think it's, it's suitable. We're going to continue talking right after the break. You can join us, too. We're going to hear from the AARP of Connecticut, our number, 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. We've been talking about elder abuse. Up to 10% of older Americans have been abused or mistreated. The AARP in Connecticut is asking state lawmakers to pass a law this session to help deter fraud and abuse of senior citizens. Joining us now on Zoom, Nora Duncan, the state director of Connecticut AARP. Nora, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Lucy. Good to be here. So we heard Fuad define elder abuse for us and some of the factors that lead to its underreporting. How does ARP track this problem in our state? Well, we have a, a couple of things. I mean, one, we have the AARP Fraud Watch Network, which is uh, a collaboration with our national partners, our local partners, and we help feed information to folks like Dorian um, and to the FTC on issues related mostly to financial exploitation. Um, you know, when we work year round with these government, social services and law enforcement to fight fraud and elder abuse, and we really focus on making sure that individuals understand what kind of financial exploitation frauds and scams are out there so they can identify them and then avoid becoming victims. Right. Dorian mentioned that I think 23% of the cases uh, that are referred are uh, financial, related to uh, financial abuse. And so talk th us through this legislation that AARP is supporting this session. Sure. Um, so the legislation came after AARP and other stakeholders worked on the Senior Fraud Task Force in 2021 and into early 2022. And they came up with recommendations. So one of the recommendations to follow up on your questions with Dorian is a reduction in the caseloads of the investigators that are working on potential elder abuse to limit them to not more than 25 cases at any one time. You know, that really helps dig in and get to that substantiation that you talked about. Um, another is mandatory training, because there are people who are mandated reporters 
of neglect, uh, abuse, exploitation, and abandonment of elderly persons, but they're not necessarily properly trained. So that's important in the identification as your, your guest spoke of earlier. And then this task force actually started in the realm of some of the issues that we were seeing across the state in terms of applying for uh, Medicaid, which is what happens when you are lower income and you need services, but there had been some malfeasance perhaps uh, in some cases, or at least accusations of that. So <clears throat> the third recommendation is about disclosing potential conflicts of interest um, and explaining the legal rights from anyone assisting elderly persons with those Medicaid applications. And this all really gets into the issues of helping people, um, both the professionals and the individuals, uh, keep the hard-earned money uh, and the um, assets of folks in their own pockets, as well as helping to identify some of the, the other kinds of abuse that you've talked about today. I wanted to take a quick call. Elon is calling in from West Hartford. What's your question? Hi. First, I want to uh, just say that you know, I conduct research at UConn on elder mistreatment in long-term care homes. And uh, I think this initiative that Fuad and his team developed is uh, sorely needed, obviously. Um, my uh, question, and I also hope, and I spoke with Fuad recently about hopefully expanding the tool to long-term care homes where we know that elder mistreatment is prevalent. My question has to do with retaliation. We know that, you know, um, on one hand, um, it, educating, empowering, and encouraging elders who perceive themselves um, as victims of elder mistreatment to report it to authorities is a good thing. On the other hand, uh, a subgroup of them may be subjected to uh, retaliation by the perpetrators. So my question is, um, how do we... Uh, to the extent that it's possible, um, increase the likelihood that the elders who uh, want to report it will also be at the same time protected from retaliation by the perpetrators who might find out that they reported it. That's a great point, uh, Elon. Fuad, did you want to take that question? Yes. Um, so, Elan, Elan, thank you, and I really look forward to work with you in identifying elder abuse um, cases in long-term care, and I think that is another area that voices could be a good fit to it. Um, I think that we, we talk about abuse all the time as the one kind or one problem, but each type of abuse is different. The um, types that, that Nora was talking about um, re regarding financial abuse, it, it comes in, in, in its own circumstancing. We're, re we're seeing um, a, a significant rise in romance scam. And in romance scam are different from other types of abuse because the perpetrator is not usually in reach. They're, they're most of the cases they're out of the country. And uh, what we're seeing from victims is that when we approach them to help them um, and to guide them through the um, process of stopping such a scam and such financial abuse, they would typically say no. You know, they feel that the um, perpetrator is providing them 
with feelings that they could then um, receive from someone else. And they continue to um, listen to them. Um, tools like voices would work on changing their behavior and encouraging them to seek help and disclose that type of abuse to others. And that's what we're hoping to continue on, whether it's in long-term care setting or in other care settings um, around the healthcare system. Um, Fawad, we just have a couple of minutes left. Nora Duncan, I wanted you to maybe respond to our caller, the question about you know the fear of retaliation. That is one of the factors that keeps older adults from speaking up. Yeah, and, and it's a legitimate fear, especially if you're talking about uh, a family member or a caregiver who is also at the same time helping you remain independent at home keeping you out of a of an institutional setting um you know it it's an absolutely terrible problem <clears throat> and i i want to respond also just because i think it's important to fuad's point about romance scams we see an incredible rise in those as well and the the issue that if people are able to report if they do get out of the cloud of the scammer or out from under the thumb of the caregiver, let's say, who's who's been abusing them, um, AARP offers a program called REST that is an online support session for emotional support. You know, the, the scam can be devastating, but it doesn't have to define you. So we offer these free small group sessions um, with trained peer facilitators. And the goal is to help you reestablish trust and integrate your experience and build back your resilience during these times. So, you know, I just want to make sure people understand that once they get through this or they help someone through this, there are resources that people can go to for support. And that's again called REST. And that's with the Volunteers of America and AARP Fraud Watch Network. And we'll be sure to also link to that program that you mentioned. Nora Duncan, again, a state director for the Connecticut AARP. Thank you, Nora, for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Lucy, thanks for highlighting this really important issue. And Fawad Abujarad was here, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Yale School of Medicine. A very interesting tool that you and your team have created, the Voices tool. Fawad, thank you. Thank you um, for having me. It's, it was my pleasure. Today's show produced by Sujata Srinivasan. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We'll be back tomorrow.